Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 76, Apollo 8, part 1. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So if you're familiar with us, this is where we bring in scientists, engineers, astronauts, sometimes historians, and we tell you all the cool stuff about what's going on right here at NASA. Sometimes we take a moment to reflect on what we've done in the past. So again, if you've been listening to us, you may know that this is an especially good year for anniversaries. We've celebrated 60 years of NASA, 20 years of the International Space Station, and 50 years of Apollo. Exactly 50 years ago, on the day that we released this episode, so it would be December 21st, 1968, three brave men set course for the moon for the very first time. They were Frank Borman as commander, Jim Lovell as command module pilot, and Bill Anders as the lunar module pilot. It was the first time that humans traveled to the moon and the first time humans launched on the legendary Saturn V rocket, putting NASA one small step closer to taking that historic giant leap for all of mankind. To recount this mission, we're bringing in some very special guests. Returning to the podcast is Dr. Jennifer Rosnazel, our historian here at the NASA Johnson Space Center. We go over not only what happened during the mission, but the landscape of the Apollo program at the time and surrounding details that you may have never heard before. I also had the honor and privilege to speak with Apollo 8 Commander Frank Borman and Apollo 8 Lunar Module Pilot Bill Anders about their historic mission. We'll kick off today's episode with Commander Borman. I traveled out to Montana just about two years ago to discuss his involvement in the Apollo 1 fire investigation that helped to make changes to the Apollo capsule and get NASA back on course to meet President Kennedy's declaration of landing on the moon by the end of the decade after the tragedy. But while I was there, we had a great discussion about Apollo 8 and the decisions and planning that helped make it possible. Here's the first bit of that conversation. How did you get comfortable with the plan to go all the way to the moon? for the Apollo 8 mission? Well, as I mentioned, I was on the committee that investigated the fire. Mm -hmm. Then I was sent out to Downey to uh, help implement the changes that the, the change board in Houston had made. So I knew that spacecraft probably as well as anybody. And uh, of course, uh, I had complete confidence in the, the, the management and, and Chris Kraft and his people and. Slayton and the crew, I, I, uh, I don't want to sound uh, superficial, but I didn't have any concerns. Of, I, I was absolutely convinced that we had a spacecraft that could do what it was designed to do. How did you train for the early Apollo missions? And did well, following the development of the vehicles play a part in uh, compensating for maybe immature training program? Well, we didn't find out for sure on Apollo 8 that we were going to the moon until August. The mission was in December. That's a very short time period to us. So we trained uh, frantically, but back then the decisions were made by people that were competent to make them quickly. Uh, I remember I sat down with uh, Chris Kraft and two or three of his people one afternoon, and in one afternoon we hammered out the, the basic flight program for Apollo 8. Normally that would have taken months, but you know, I would just, uh, I just had so much confidence in the people that were running it, like Chris and George Lowe and, and uh, Slayton and Gilruth, that uh, it, was a, it was a hectic time, and it was a time that demanded total dedication and total involvement. But uh, 
it, uh, it went smoothly. Well, how did the crew interact with engineers performing upgrades and uh, the testing of the vehicle? Well, we were, most of the upgrades on the vehicle had been uh, made prior to the flight by uh, the change board that George Lowe headed, like changing the, the uh, hatch and things like that. So we didn't have the, uh, we, we, we weren't charged or did we that make any significant changes to the vehicle that I can remember. But we, we were very careful about the mission and not, uh, and not overloading it. I, I remember uh, during one of the mission planning things later on, after we had the basic flight plan laid out, somebody came up with the idea they wanted us to do EVA on the way to the moon. And, and you know, this, this is nuts. <laughs> we, we've got, if, we've got a, a, a big mission to get into the moon, beating the Russians, which was the overriding factor, beat the Russians to the moon. And, and now you want to jeopardize or potentially jeopardize the, the uh, mission by opening a hatch that had never been opened. But, you know, as soon as I objected to that, well, Chris Kraft and others said that they just didn't worry about it, went away. Awesome. <laughs> and then I was stupid, too, because, you know, I said, okay, well, we don't want a television on, camera on board because uh, we don't want to be distracted. Well, that was nuts. The American people deserved to have it, and I was overruled by, by people that, that were smarter than I was. What communication system enhancements uh, took place by the time Apollo 8 flew, and then what were the photo and TV requirements for the mission? Well, we had a regular uh, photo plan, and the, the, the person that was in charge of the photography on Apollo 8 was uh, Bill Anders, and he did a real good job. As a matter of fact, he had a detailed program of everything he wanted to take a picture of. And the TV programs were coordinated before we left. And again, this is an example of NASA in the 60s. Uh, we were told that we would have the largest audience that ever listened to a human voice on the TV program from the moon on Christmas Eve. And I, and I said, well, have you got any suggestions? What, what do you want us to do? And the answer came back from Julian Shear, who was the head of PR for NASA. He said, do something appropriate. And I thought this was remarkable and wonderful. This was America at its best. And so, but it was, a, uh, it was a difficult thing to figure out what was appropriate. Both Anders and Lovell and I and our friends and why we, we couldn't come up with an appropriate. Everything that looked good would seem inappropriate. And finally, we <laughs> asked a, I asked a friend and he asked a friend and uh, the friend's wife came with the idea of reading from Genesis. Turned out to be perfect. What things surprised you? on Apollo 8, and what differences did you notice between the Gemini program and, uh, or the Gemini vehicle and the Apollo vehicle? The Apollo vehicle was a uh, much more sophisticated vehicle than the Gemini program, than Gemini vehicle. It was, uh, it had the capability for onboard navigation to a far greater extent than, uh, than Gemini did. Hmm. And Jim Lovell was the primary man responsible for navigation. We had a very sophisticated uh, very sophisticated inertial platform and uh, a, a automatic telescope that would pick up stars for you. But I remember another, this is another good example of NASA at that time period. We had, uh, as I said, an inertial platform and the original idea or plan from the Apollo program office was to, uh, when you weren't using the platform, shut it down. And then when you wanted to take a sighting to make a burn or whatever, you, you brought it back up again oriented it with the stars, and then uh, going that way, that would, save, that would save energy. Well, 
we had plenty of energy available for the fuel cells we're working. And uh, so my, my idea was, well, look, if you got a platform that's working, why shut it down? So I went, asked the Apollo program office about that. I said, I, I prefer to leave it running. And they referred the question to the people at MIT. And I got a two-page letter back from the man who had designed the program. I've forgotten his name. I wish I'd have saved the letter. And it, it validated all the reasons that we were given to shut down the, pro, the, uh, the, uh, the inertial platform. And he signed it. And then at the bottom it said, P.S. If I were going on this mission, I'd let the damn thing run too. <laughs> it was that kind of a deal at NASA yeah, at that time. Right. Wow. Individuals made a difference. That was Frank Borman, commander of Apollo 8. We'll play a little bit more from that interview later in today's episode. But for now, let's jump right ahead to our talk with Dr. Jennifer Rosnazel and the astronauts from Apollo 8, Frank Borman and Bill Anders. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit for red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Ten, nine. We have ignition sequence start. The engines are on. Four, three, two, one, zero. We have commit. We have, the we have liftoff. Liftoff at 7.51 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming back on Houston We Have a Podcast. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad we didn't scare you off. <laughs> Not too much. <laughs> okay, so, so last time you were on, we talked about the beginnings of the Johnson Space Center itself a lot. That was the part, big part of the discussion. A little bit about the Apollo program, but a, a little bit more about the science. We had John Cruney here, and we, right. were, and we were going a little bit back and forth on that. I thought it was really interesting, but now we are literally 50 years from the time that we are releasing the podcast is going to be exactly 50 years from the launch of apollo 8. so i figured you're the perfect person to come in and talk about this mission as the jsc historian i wanted to start with um the apollo program once again uh you know we talked a little bit about uh, mercury and gemini before but basically they kind of introduced spaceflight, human spaceflight, and we were practicing those conce concepts, getting really good at it because getting to the moon is very complex. So by the time we get to the Apollo program, we're ready to fly Apollo 1, and you know we don't really set off on the right foot. So uh, Apollo 1, what's, what's happening there? Apollo 1 was a test out at the Cape, and unfortunately there was a fire inside the command module, and all three astronauts perished. It was really devastating for the people, especially at this center, because they knew the astronauts. They worked with the astronauts on a day-to-day -day basis. They were friends. They knew their families. Um, so it was really challenging for them. I think the best example that I can give of that is Gene Krantz, who was a flight director. And he was really moved by what had happened. And he had his flight controllers, along with John Hodge, who was another um, flight director come and they spoke in the Building 30 auditorium and he gave a speech and, and, and talked about how uh, they knew that there were problems. They knew that they were moving too quickly, uh, but no one stood up. No one said, this needs to stop. 
and he wrote on the board tough and competent, which is something that, that mission operations is known by still today. Uh, from this point on, we'll be known as tough and competent. You know, we'll we'll think about these things in the future. We'll make sure that um, you know we're thinking about the crew and its and its safety, and we won't see this happen again. So Apollo one was really jarring, but at the same time, you have people talking about how if it hadn't been for the fire, there might have been a more dangerous situation happen with the crews in flight. A lot of people think that if the fire hadn't happened, we might not have reached the moon by the end of the decade. Um, so it was a really, um, difficult time for people working at the Space Center and of course all the contractors uh, and different NASA centers uh, but especially here at the Manned Spacecraft Center. Yeah definitely difficult because they're like you said they're people you know you know you were close with them they're not it's not just a thing you lost it's a it's a person it's a human life but that culture shift was essential like you're saying to actually making the mission successful because there was this culture from what from what you're saying is this culture of you know, let's just let's just do it, and then these minor mistakes are just you know kind of nuisance things in the way. Um, we won't deal with them, and then we'll just kind of move on because we have a mission to do. But I think that tough and competent is more establishing a culture of no, you know, we have to check ourselves. You know, we have to make sure that what we're doing is it, there's a human life in here, and that is just as important as the mission itself. Absolutely. And actually, um, interestingly enough, you, you just reminded me, uh, Chris Kraft sat down to do an interview with us several years ago to talk about the Apollo 8 mission and talk about, before the fire happened, the challenges that he saw. And one of the big challenges that he identified was the fact that a lot of the people who were working on Apollo really hadn't had experience in human spaceflight or manned spaceflight, it was, as it was known at that time. And so they didn't understand the importance of, of safety and, and thinking about the human being that was going to be in that command module. They had experience working defense programs and other things. And so, you know, that was a real major issue for him in trying to explain to people, we have to think about the human being that's part of this program. We can't just overlook that. We're not just sending a piece of hardware to space. We're sending a human being that needs to come back safely. Exactly. And you're referencing some key players here. You mentioned Gene Kranz. You mentioned Chris Kraft. Um, these are these are leaders in human spaceflight at this period of time. George Lowe is another person. Robert Gilruth. Um, how are you know what what are these guys' positions mm -hmm. and what is their role in the Apollo program at this time? Yeah. So Bob Gilruth. Uh, I think we talked about him a little bit last. Last time. Mm -hmm. He's center director here at the Manned Spacecraft Center. A lot of people credit him with the Apollo program. They say we couldn't have gotten to the moon without him. Mm. Uh, he's really a leader. Um, he might be the manager of this whole center, but a lot of people look at him as, um, you know, someone who made people stop and think. And I think a good example of this is a story that I like to tell Dottie Lee, who was an engineer out here. She started as a computer, actually, working at NACA. Uh, she remembers there were a group of guys sitting in office working on an issue, you know, trying to work out a question. And she said, Gilbert noticed, and he stopped. And he just asked a question. And it started to, them down a different line of thinking. And so, you know, he wasn't just a manager. He was a leader. So a lot of people looked towards him and said, you know, what we accomplished wouldn't have been possible without Bob Gilruth. So he was really important for human spaceflight. Uh, George Lowe was our previous deputy here at the Space Center, and then he became program manager of ASPO. 
Mm-hmm. And he was also very important, um, very critical to the changes that we saw happening after the fire. Uh, he replaced another program manager. He instituted significant changes. Previously, there had been a lot of complaints here at the center, especially that um, the Apollo spacecraft program office hadn't been utilizing the center's technical leadership, um, you know, their technical background and training. Um, so he decided to make it more of a center program, make it more of an MSC program, and really tap into all of the engineers and scientists and people who were working here. And that really benefited the program. He also came up with the configuration change board, which required a lot of managers to show up on Friday afternoons and, and talk about a lot of the issues that they were facing and what changes needed to be made. Um, and of course, he made all the decisions, but he made sure everyone had a chance to, to air their concerns. Uh, and he felt like if there were any concerns or problems, people would go to Bob Gilruth and complain. And uh, he said people generally did not. But um, <laughs> um, And then there's Chris Kraft, who's head of, of flight operations uh, and the mission controllers who were working in Building 30, obviously a very Im- important guy, um, our first flight director, um, critical to this uh, decision to go to the moon uh, and this change in our schedule. So there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of important people working at MSC. And I, I think one thing that we should point out here is that this idea of sending Apollo 8 to the moon for the first time, you know, skipping over a couple missions, really was an idea that was thought of and conceived of here. And MSC had to go out and convince other centers, other NASA leaders, this is a good idea. So mm-hmm. I don't think that often gets much credit, but that's that's really, you know, like I said, George Lowe had been our deputy center director. So it really is kind of an MSC idea. Yeah. So Apollo 8, you know, the original mission architecture wasn't how it was flown now that we read in, in the history books. It was, it was a little bit different. Right. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Apollo 1 fire happened, and then we had all of these tests to lead up to the next human mission, which was the first time that astronauts were actually launching to space in the Apollo program, and that was Apollo 7. And I think that was a milestone mission just to get to Apollo 8, you know, but, but in and of itself, what was, what was that mission all about? Yeah, Apollo 7 was important. Um to Apollo 8 because we couldn't have, we couldn't have gone to Apollo 8 if Apollo 7 had not been successful mm-hmm. but it was the first flight that we had of Apollo first human flight of course we had done all this testing prior to that um, so we have a crew of three uh, Wally Schirra who'd flown on Mercury and Gemini and he was the commander and then we have uh, Walt Cunningham and, and Don Isley on that flight um, you know everything just seemed to work really well and the system seemed to you know all click um, that was the first time we had television on board the uh, spacecraft which was uh, really um, important to your folks public affairs people yeah we love it <laughs> yeah well you know and they had been fighting for TV for a long time actually they've been trying to encourage the engineers to include television and and they would say well we don't have uh, the space or you know it would add too much weight so we're not going to take it on board and, and some of the astronauts weren't in favor of it mm-hmm. um, but public affairs said you know this is a great way for the taxpayers people who are paying the bills to actually see let them come along for a ride and see what what life is like in, in the space capsule uh, so you know that was a really um, important moment I think for Americans to actually see astronauts in space yeah and it's those that footage you know Apollo 7 Apollo 8 too as as we'll see 
all very important historical moments that were captured mm -hmm. by you know the cameras and and the audio that was transmitted back uh, for you know public affairs purposes. Yeah. Um, but you know this was the Apollo Seven was was an Apollo mission, yes, but it, it didn't go to the moon. Like you said, it was going mm -hmm. to space, but it was uh, just going around the Earth testing the components that would eventually go to the moon. And I don't think Apollo 8 was originally supposed to go to the moon. It was supposed to be another test mission, right. but they accelerated the plans, right? Yes, and yeah. I think that was in part due to um, the fact that we were in the middle of a Cold War. We were in the middle of a space race. Mm -hmm. And we were not just trying to advance ourselves, but we were competing with the Soviet Union at the time. And they were sending animals <laughs> around right. the moon at the time on Zon 5, right? Right, yeah, they had tortoises, I think mealworms, and, and a few other things. I think yeah. they had seeds and bacteria, so a wide variety of things that, that did that circumlunar flight. So it was just, you know, just a flyby, but, you know, still perhaps in the eyes of the world and Americans, you know, maybe, maybe a first, mm -hmm. um, but not human beings. And, so. and some of these key players that we were talking about, right? Yeah, Borman included, but um, as well as uh, George Lowe and uh, some of the, some of these key players came into a room and decided that we were going to change the architecture of Apollo Eight, right? Well, George Lowe had been on vacation, as I understand it, and oh. was was thinking about this because okay. there were there were some problems. First of all, the lunar module um, was was. It had a lot of challenges. There's mm. a lunar module down at the Cape. There are a lot of problems with it. They weren't going to be able to fly it for the next mission that they wanted to. So, um, you know, Lowe was thinking, how, how are we going to keep our deadline? We have this deadline that the president set, this national mandate. Um, and he comes up with this idea. Why don't, why don't we just bypass that and send a crew to the moon? Mm -hmm. You know, we'll do a, a circumlunar flight. And he talks it over with uh, with Chris Kraft and, and Bob Gilruth and you know, really thinks about um, you know how this could be beneficial and he often says if Bob Gilruth just going back to the important players if Bob Gilruth had said no he said he wouldn't have pursued it but Bob Gilruth thought about it for about 10 seconds he said and said yeah I think it's a great idea let's move <laughs> forward so you know he had a lot of respect for uh, for Bob Gilruth and his ideas about um, you know human spaceflight so, yeah it was, um, I think it was, uh, I know Bill Anders on that flight was not a huge fan of that because he was the resident um, lunar module, you know, expert. And he, I, I, from what I understand from, from doing a little bit of research was how, uh, you know, kind of excited he was to fly that lunar module, but that wasn't part of the new Apollo 8 architecture because going around the moon did not require him to fly or test the uh, lunar module. Right, because there wasn't going to be a lunar module. Yeah, exactly. There wasn't going to be, there wasn't one that was going to be available. So, um, <laughs> you know, they were just going to be in their command module and yeah. he had other tasks that he was going to be working on. Now, besides the actual elements that the astronauts are in, right, we're talking about the lunar module, the command module. Um, I know Apollo 7 launched on a Saturn rocket, but it was a smaller Saturn rocket. Right. I believe that it was a 1B. Yes. Sat the Apollo 8, though, was going to be the first time that humans were going to launch on the legendary Saturn 5, which was that big rocket that you could feel from New York from what I could. <laughs> Seismometers can actually read that yeah. thing from New York. It was so powerful. Um, so I know there were some uh, uncrewed tests before that. There were. There were several tests. Uh, the first flight of the Saturn V, as I recall, went pretty well. 
the second flight, though, Apollo 6 did not go well. Chris Kraft called it a total disaster. It had a lot of pogo problems and oscillation issues. And so, of course, there were some people who thought, you know, we're going to send people on a Saturn V. The last time we had a Saturn V, it didn't go so well, but yet we're going to send men on board to the moon. And of course, Werner von Braun and his crew out at uh, Marshall said, "No, we've 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 taken care of it, like NASA does. Every time that there's a problem, of course, you investigate and you solve the issues, figure out you know what the problems were and how they can be resolved and fixed." Mm -hmm. And so he guaranteed that the rocket would be ready in time. As a matter of fact, you know, we we talked a little bit about. Um, Lowe coming up with this idea. He talked to Kraft, and then they talked to Gilruth. And then they called Werner, and Gilruth said, we need to talk to you about something. And and uh, he said, well, you know, I'll have some time tomorrow. He said, no, we need to talk to you about it now. So they went out on the Gulf Stream and went to talk to Werner von Braun oh, wow. to convince him of the importance. Again, you know, like MSE taking that show <laughs> on the road and trying to convince people, hey, this is a really important idea, and this is a, a way we can best uh, the Soviet Union. Yeah, again, uh, you know, going back to that political pressure, right? And you're, not only are you trying to advance the mission, but you got to do it by the end of the decade. you got to beat the Soviet Union. There's all that going on. Right, and there was a concern that the CIA had footage of, uh, you know, a possible moon rocket getting ready. And so, you know, there was another impetus for the United States to move forward, yeah. um, to put to put forth this, um, you know, this amazing mission that we hadn't considered at this point. Yeah, and I know that um, you know part part of the of accelerating the plan and getting to the architecture of Apollo Eight was the original Apollo Eight crew had to be flip flopped. Right. I think it was uh, Jim McDivitt, Dave Scott. And Russell Schweikart. Schweikart. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I have them here, but no, I, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but they had a they had a flip flop, right? Just because um, I think of the the way. I, well, you can probably explain it better. <laughs> well, yeah. They had they had decided to uh, to flip the missions. Actually, Deke uh, contacted Frank Borman, who was out at Downey. And because uh, Deke, Deke Slayton, of course, was involved in these discussions as well, because George wanted to know, would, would the flight crews be able to handle this? And would this Slayton be was in charge of the astronauts, right? Yes, he was mm -hmm. in charge of the astronauts. So mm -hmm. he called Borman and uh, said, you know, I want you to go to the moon. I want your crew to go to the moon. They were out at Downey working in their, their spacecraft. He left behind his two crew members and uh, went back to Houston and, and was told, this is, this is your next mission, this is your, your charge. And I think you know, it was kind of exciting probably for Borman because the mission that he was going to be on was just kind of a repeat of the Apollo 8 mission. They were gonna be at a much higher altitude, um, but it really wasn't as exciting, I think. I mean, this, this is gonna be exciting, the first crew to go around the moon. Yes. Um, so of course he goes back and tells his crew, we're going to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going fast, right? I think I had an accelerated training program that had to be ready even faster than they four originally months. thought. Four yeah, months. Yeah, four months uh, is, is the, the training time that they had. So very quick. So moving up to launch day, you know, December 21st, 1968, we're lifting off from Kennedy Space Center up on the uh, Saturn V rocket. Uh, leading up to that point, you know, what... Uh, what, what steps did we have to do to get there, just a launch day, from the four months? Yeah, well, you know, you have to work on your flight plan, you have to work on your trajectories, uh, you gotta get everything ready for the crew. I mean, just simple, basic things like food, making sure you have enough uh, food for the crew, um, training, 
you know, accelerated training uh, times for the crew, spending a lot of time in a new uh, command module because they weren't going in their spacecraft that they had originally go- were going in. Hmm. They were they were flip flopping. So they had a new spacecraft, and spacecraft, while they may have been similar, you know, they all have their little quirks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot that had to be done. Mission Control had to do a lot of work. Chris Kraft, actually, before he agreed to what Lowe put forth, said, I need to have some guys from Mission Control um, take a look at this. Is this even possible? Can we do this? And uh, they came back and said yes. You know, the original idea was, well, we'll just go around the moon, kind of do a flyby, do a do a, 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 a look, sort of a peek at the backside of the moon and come home. Uh, but his his guys, uh, Tyndall, for instance, and, and John Mayer came back and said, we don't just want to just fly by. What we want to do is we want to go into lunar orbit. And he he was kind of concerned at that, like, why why would you add so much risk mm-hmm. to this mission? You know, we're, we're adding enough risk as it is. We, we've shortened the time frame. And they said, well, you know, we're we're committing a lot of resources just to go around the moon once. Maybe we should use this as a learning opportunity for future missions. So that way we can learn a lot more and be prepared for these future missions that are going to be going to the moon. Take advantage of these opportunities to learn more. And that was part of Apollo 8, right, was in inserting the spacecraft into lunar orbit. Yes. Not just slinging around the back. Right, yes. Because they, they, they could have, the trajectory people could have put them on what's known as a free return trajectory. So the moon would have captured them and brought them back out in a slingshot, brought mm-hmm. them back to Earth. Uh, but yeah, they had to, uh, to actually go into lunar orbit. They had to use another engine to make sure they could get down and circle the, uh, the moon. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, even on launch day, uh, actually, you know, going past translunar inject, translunar injection, right? So that was the first time that that happened, right. because, and even like you said, in Mission Control, everyone thinking, is this even possible? Mission Control at the time only really showed, you know, the Earth. You know, right. you only any mission you did only showed the map of the Earth because that's really all you need to be concerned about. Now you have to flip the map and show the Earth and the moon it's it's a little bit different even in that sense but even inside the capsule i know um borman actually got a little bit sick on the first couple days uh which was kind of a surprise because he's you know he was a test pilot and has flown all different kinds of aircraft he's like really now now i'm gonna get sick (laughs) Yeah, yeah and i think that was a little bit um if I, if I remember correctly, that was actually like almost an extreme case of motion sickness. Right, yeah, mm-hmm. space adaptation syndrome, yeah. which people really hadn't dealt with much because right. in Mercury and Gemini, there wasn't much room to maneuver. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just kind of stuck. I think they call Gemini like the front of a, a Volkswagen bug, you know, <laughs> not so much room you had. So you're just sitting there. You know, he had been on this, uh, this mission before Gemini 7, mm-hmm. and he'd been in orbit for 17 days or 14 days excuse me and he hadn't suffered from this but they're moving around now in a, in a capsule you have a lot more movement and i think uh, anders even noticed that when yeah. he started moving around or maybe it was level um like whoa you know don't don't move your head too quickly um <laughs> but but yeah i mean he he definitely suffered from this uh, motion sickness and uh of course, the rest of the crew wanted to alert Mission Control, and, and he wasn't too excited about doing that. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, was a, he was a straight and narrow kind of guy. He really wanted to you know, head forward, just do the mission. Um, 
so so Apollo 8 obviously you know this this is a uh, learning how to go around the moon the first time that humans are leaning leaving the orbit of earth and and actually influenced by the gravity of another celestial body it's a, it's a big deal um, but what exactly were the requirements of Apollo 8 what were we really setting out to figure out on this mission well, you know, one of the big things that they wanted to know that uh, that Chris Kraft had asked a, a lot of the geologists is, what do you want to learn from this mission? Because the, the crew would be going around the moon for many orbits. And so, you know, what did they want to know? And they wanted to know more about the moon itself. They could see things, but they couldn't see things in great detail. So they wanted to know more about these craters, potential landing sites, what 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 might be, for instance, at the Sea of Tranquility, um, different mountain ranges, um, you know, descriptions of the moon, you know, up close, because they were going to be going around at, what, 69 miles above the moon. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the big things that they really wanted to know. Plus, you know, just, just testing of, uh, of hardware. How mm -hmm. are things going to operate around the moon? How are we going to communicate? How well are, are things going to work? Is that, that engine that we're, we're planning on, on lighting, is that going to work in lunar orbit? Which was, like you said, a big risk. You know, one of those one of those things. Do we want to actually risk this? You know, this is again human. Going back to this is human life that we're mm -hmm. talking about here. Yeah. But it's about trusting the hardware, and these and these guys were part of, you know, the even the design and and the verification of the hardware throughout the whole thing, because mm -hmm. it was ultimately going to be them flying it. Um, so yeah, definitely mapping the lunar surface. Right, you got a perspective like no other, you're <laughs> at the moon, so that's not bad. Um, there's a lot of photography requirements. From what I understand, though, when they actually entered into lunar orbit, taking a photo of the Earth was not a requirement. It was, they right. honestly didn't even think about it, but there it was, right? That's kind of how that happened, the Earthrise photo. Right, yeah, so they were, they were going around and they, they came around and it's like, oh my gosh, look at that. And uh, in one of the interviews we have with, with Bill Anders, uh, he talks about how, you know, he looks up and he sees this very colorful Christmas ornament, is how he described it, <laughs> uh, when compared to, like, the, the drab, uh, I think he called it the ugliness of the, 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 the lunar environment. You know, it's just kind of drab and gray. But there's this, this Christmas ornament, and, you know, they're all in awe. Oh, my gosh, look. You know, in the against the blackness of space, this really stood out, the blues and the greens. Yeah. That yeah. was, uh, what was the quote? We went to the moon and discovered the Earth? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I love that. You're right, because you're at the moon, right? Finally, there it is, right in front of you, and you're like, eh, that was interesting. Ooh, look at the Earth. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? That place where we've been all of our lives, that looks pretty. But it's a different perspective, because no one's ever seen it from that far away. Like, literally, literally nobody. Right, it yeah. Was, it was entirely new. Yeah, they, these were the first three men to, to see that. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, the uh, the effect of that photo that it had uh, once it got published and, and printed, the fact that, you know, we see an environmental movement as a result of this, an Earth Day, the passage of, you know, the, the creation of the EPA Act, Clean Air Act, all of these things come out, I think, as a result of that photo. Wow. You know, just how um, fragile that, that Earth really is. When you think about it. We hear that a lot even from astronauts on the space station right now. They're pretty close to the Earth, but they get a real nice look at that thin line that's right. uh, separating Earth from space. And they're like, wow, that's it? Wow, we need to 
yeah. And it goes back to, you know, the, even the photo from that far away established the EPA. That's not bad. Mm. Um, so, so what was, uh, this might be kind of obvious at the time that this podcast is publishing, but, you know, we said we were launching on the 21st. We're right around Christmas time. But again, we, you know, we need to get to the, to the moon, on the moon by the end of the decade, and we're already at the end of 1968. Um, so, you know, here we are flying during Christmas, but they took that opportunity to uh, do something special for mm -hmm. the season, right? On, and on December 21st, they read from Genesis. Uh, Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. They, oh, they read. December yeah. 24th. No, it's okay. Yeah, you're, you're thinking of lunch. It's okay. You know, it, yeah. ha it happens. <laughs> <laughs> Probably have said some things wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they were thinking about what they wanted to say. And actually, Borman talked to head of public affairs, who was Julian Shear at the time. And Julian Shearer said, you're going to have this audience. You're going to have hundreds of thousands of people watching. And, you know, think of something. Which is interesting to me because in comparison to the Soviets who we were in a race with, they probably would have come up with some sort of propaganda that they wanted the cosmonauts to read. But here, it's the astronauts were allowed to come up with something. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they... Borman actually was kind of racking his brain and, and talking with several people about what he could possibly say, you know, what might resonate with some of these people uh, who were tuning in uh, to learn more about Apollo 8 and the moon, you know, the excitement. And so he asked uh, several folks, and finally someone came up with the idea of, of Genesis. It was actually someone's wife. And uh, so when they were talking um, during that what is it, 24-minute uh, broadcast. They talked, of course, about what they were seeing in terms of the moon and, you know, how dark and desolate it was, you know, um, you know how they wouldn't want to necessarily live there. It wasn't very inspiring. Uh, but then they, they did read from, from Genesis. They decided to read from, I think it was the first 10 verses. Mm -hmm. um, and they each took an opportunity to do that. And then good night, you know, to the people of the good earth, you know. Yeah. So, uh, but a, a lot of people really... Um, really appreciated that. There, there, of course, was an individual who uh, took issue with it, Madeline Murray O'Hare, who filed a court case um, mm. against uh, any federal employees, you know, reading the Bible or saying prayers, these sort of things. Uh, but overwhelmingly, there was a lot of support for NASA. There were lots of letters that came in saying that they supported uh, what, what the crew of Apollo 8 had done. Right, yeah. It was uh, going back to, you know, establishing the capability for broadcasting. It just shows how, you know, bringing everyone from Earth on board this spacecraft, looking back at the Earth, these three men are right above the moon. Yeah. And uh, talking about that, that's, it's... Uh, just that little, it's, it might look like a little thing and it might be a little bit of, a lot of extra effort to actually make that a capability, but look how impactful it was. We're talking about it now, 50 years later. Yes. Um, now, of course, the next day was, was Christmas Day. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, 
and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. <laughs> God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. So I know they had a, a special Christmas meal already planned, right? P planning for all of the meals, they had they had a Christmas meal. Right, right. Well, in, I'm sure you've heard about the food. The food was notoriously bad <laughs> for uh, Mercury and Gemini. A lot of freeze-dried food, a lot of cubes. You've probably, you've probably seen them on site. I know that uh, some of the center buildings have them uh, as little tiny exhibits, uh, but not really inspiring. <laughs> um, not a favorite. Uh, but here, you know, the food folks had thought about this possibility. And so they actually gave them turkey and gravy and cranberries and great punch. But they had also packed some brandy for the crew, which Borman said we wouldn't touch because if there was an accident, it would be blamed on the fact that the crew had had alcohol. So those went back uh, into storage. But uh, you know, I think that was a, a nice moment, a nice touch for the uh, the crew to get to celebrate that holiday with such a traditional meal. Yeah, and and there was yeah, it was Borman's call not to drink it, and I think he said we'll drink it after the mission, and then I don't think they ever did. I, I don't think so. I actually yeah. have seen. I think Jim Lovell actually put his bottle up for sale. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, so they really never drank. Right. <laughs> um, okay, so so I think. Uh, you know, obviously, from the moon, you got to come home, right? So, what was that journey like? Going, like you're you're around the moon, and now you're leaving. You're going back towards Earth to the rest of, and to the end of Apollo Eight. Right. I th I think the crew was probably pretty exhausted by that point. <laughs> I don't think they got much sleep. As a matter of fact, at some point, Borman told his crew while they were going around the moon to get to bed. You know, kind of like this fatherly action. Uh, you're tired, you're making mistakes, get to bed. Mm -hmm. um, so I think they were they were tired, but also just elated over the fact that they had successfully achieved this mission. And of course, the, going around the backside of the uh, moon for the, the last time and firing that engine, and they came out and Lovell said, you know, yes, there is indeed a Santa Claus. <laughs> Things worked well. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, people were pretty uh, emotional especially here at the, the Space Center. Um, but, I th you know, I think the crew was probably just really exhausted. Oh, yeah. They had accomplished a, a lot. It, they honestly did. And, um, you know, th speaking of that, w uh, I wanted to take a break real quick and jump to uh, the remainder of the interview that we opened up with with Frank Borman. Um, and we also hear about, we talked about Earthrise a little bit, uh, a little bit about uh, Anders' view of Earthrise. Yeah. 
uh, your thoughts as uh, you moved out of uh, uh, orbit of the Earth into translunar orbit. You're now moving away from or towards the moon. Um, what, what were your thoughts at that time? Well, I wish I could be romantic or poetic, but I'm not. I, 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 I didn't have any particular thoughts. It was part of the mission. It worked perfectly. And, uh, okay, now we're on our way to the moon. What's the next thing on the flight plan? The idea of going to the moon was an audacious goal at the time. And just as you said, it was primarily driven by, you know, beating the Russians and all that. But it was necessary to meet uh, Kennedy's goal directive to do so by the end of the decade. Um, did you believe that you had a good chance of uh, getting to the moon? Um, and, um, yeah, did you believe you had a good chance? You know, people have often asked me, what do you think your odds were of getting back alive on this mission? And I know Bill Anders had calculated what he thought. I forgot what it was. A third that we, we would not get the mission done, a, th a third we, but we'd get back, a third we'd get the mission done, and a third we wouldn't come back. But I thought 100% we'd make it and it would be a successful mission. You know, and General Phillips, who was a Apollo program manager in Washington, the same thing. He said, look, if I didn't think it was going to be 100% successful, I, we wouldn't we wouldn't fly the mission. <laughs> why would you Why would you start out on a on a uh, uncertain task uh, with less than 100 uh, percent reliability? Which is not reliability, but assurance mm -hmm. in your own mind that it's going to work. Absolutely, um, confidence that it'll work. What did you think about the um, the magnitude of the accomplishment? So I, I, you said you know you were really thinking about the next thing, but once you actually you know, saw the moon once you were in lunar orbit. What, what did you think about that accomplishment? Well, the, the, the whole focus on the mission turned to the Earth after we saw the Earth coming up on, on the, over the lunar surface. And uh, Bill Anders took that picture of the, of the Earth rise, which was, I guess, the, one of the iconic pictures of the last century. Still is. But in any event, uh, the, uh, I think it was Bill, too, who said, look, we went all the way to the moon to discover the Earth. Uh, the Earth was the only thing in the universe that had any color. It was blue, basically, with white clouds. It was uh, very lonely, and uh, the universe was pitch black. And uh, I think it gave us a sense of, uh, of the fact that uh, we better do our best to take care of the, uh, this little blue marble that we have. So once again, that was Frank Borman, commander of Apollo 8. Bill Anders, the lunar module pilot, was also on that mission and took the famous Earthrise photo, a shot of the Earth from the lunar orbit. So here's Anders reflecting on that photograph. It didn't really sink in on me for a while, but uh, others picked it up. It sort of gave a kickstart to the environmental movement. And, uh, and, and so uh, I think Earthrise will go down to history as an iconic first real view of our home planet, which is very fragile and very delicate. So again, they, uh, from the moon, they discovered the Earth. I love that. But then they have to actually go back to the Earth. They land from the mission. I think what was interesting is even through all of the testing, through the accelerator program, through the confidence in the vehicle, I think they still said, this mission has a 50-50% chance of, of succeeding. Um, do you know why that was? Well, you know, I think that figure, first of all, comes from Chris Kraft, who went to talk with the 
with Borman's wife. I see. Who was concerned about that. And she said, can you give me the odds? And he said, I think there's a 50-50 chance that they'll come back. Um, but I've also seen other numbers. And Bill Anders, I think, said that there was like a 30% chance that the mission would succeed. Um, but I, I haven't really come across any reports that, that anyone did at NASA. I think they were too busy trying to get ready for this mission to say, uh, will this mission succeed or fail? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, NASA makes things look really easy. <laughs> <laughs> but NASA is really good at, at preparing for uh, space flight and thinking about contingencies. That's one of the things that NASA is really good at, thinking yeah. about every possibility and looking at things like redundancies and, uh, you know, that mission or that that engine, rather, that they were going to use around the moon um, didn't require an an ignition source. It was hypergolic fuels. You know, all they had to do was open it and the chemical reaction would start. So, you know, I think that there were um, certainly concerns, but I I think that uh, NASA had done a lot of the things that it needed to do um, in terms of improving the hardware after the fire. Um, and so while there may have been some concerns, of course, Chris Kraft, I think, mentions when he was in mission control waiting, while they were waiting for the crew to come out and say that that engine had, had lit and they're coming home, I think at one point he told Chuck Berry to be quiet, you know, because <laughs> he's, he's worried, he's concerned. Um, and he got a little teary-eyed about that, the fact that uh, they, they had achieved that. So definitely a milestone. I know, I think at the core of it really is just humility. I mean, like you said, they, they made it look easy and maybe they said that it was a 50-50 chance, but ultimately the three men got on that vehicle and flew it and they had the support of all of mission controls who were flying the mission and they knew they they knew the mission. I think, uh, I, I don't know if it was, uh, I can't remember the person that said it, uh, but I think it was, some, I'm paraphrasing here, something along the lines of they're not really too concerned about the things that they thought of that could go wrong. It's the things they haven't thought of right. that could go wrong. That would really be it. And they, you know, part of the job was trying to think of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again, once they landed, it was a successful mission, obviously, and they and they went out to do a few more missions. But these uh, men were named Time Magazine Men of the Year, which I think was pretty cool. <laughs> and they had parades for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they really were, uh, you know, the, the heroes. While there were hundreds of thousands of people working on the Apollo program, it was the astronauts. And, and they still are. You know, they're the most visible part of our space program. They're the ones who put their lives on the line. They climb aboard, you know, a rocket um, and go into space and, and do the things that, that you and I may not want to do, do experiments on, on ourselves or... Uh, be away from families for you know, weeks, months at a time, doing uh, training exercises. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a really grueling career. Um, but also, I think their flight really resonated with so many people. It really brought. I think its legacy really is the fact that it, if only for a brief time, brought together the people of the United States and the world. You know, there was a lot of chaos going on in '68. Uh, especially in the United States. We had uh, several assassinations. We had a very unpopular war that the United States was not winning, the Vietnam War. Uh, There were a lot of riots uh, at universities and urban centers. So, you know, just for a brief time, people came together to celebrate this mission over 
a very important uh, holiday. I think that's a huge thing to remember, is just what else was going on in 68 and how impactful this was. You know, there's a reason that these guys were named Men of the Year, um, despite everything else that was going on. Um, this mission, you know, going back to just the NASA part, was important for setting up for the ultimate lun lunar landing in July of the following year. Um, but we had of Apollo 9, 10, and 11. Right. So real quickly, the mission profiles for those three missions that ultimately led us to boots on the moon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so 9 was another Earth orbit mission, but they were testing uh, the lunar module. Finally. And, yes, <laughs> the lunar module is ready to go. So, you know, rendezvousing with it, uh, testing those techniques. And then Apollo 10 really is what they call the dress rehearsal for the lunar landing. You know, they get, uh, they go around the moon, they get in the lunar module, they go down to, I don't know, I think it's maybe 50,000 feet. I'd have to check that, don't quote me on that. Mm -hmm. uh, but they don't end up landing on the moon and they go back to their command module and return home. So, and then we've got Apollo 11, which is the first lunar landing. Um, but we still don't know, you know, is, 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 it gonna, is it gonna work? Is it gonna be successful? Even though it's slated to be the first lunar landing, is, there, is something going to happen to prevent that right. from occurring? And Apollo 10 really just gave them the confidence for that 95% of getting to the surface. It's just from that uh, whatever mile mark they actually got the lunar module down to, but didn't end up landing, just came back to rendezvous back with the command module. Um, but for Apollo 11, going down to the surface was a feat in and of itself with all kinds of crazy things that happened that I want to save for sure. <laughs> the <laughs> Apollo 11 podcast. Yeah, if, if I can, though, I just wanted, I just wanted to throw out sure. a lot of people thought that Apollo 8 was probably the most uh, challenging mission, but it, it gave people the confidence that they, that they could land on the moon. And a lot of people thought, um, you know, Apollo 8 was like baking the cake and getting it ready. Apollo 11 was just sort of the icing on the cake, you know? Like they had already demonstrated, hey, we can go to the moon. Yeah. We are we are capable of doing those things. Um, so I think a lot of people had a lot of faith in the fact that this was going to be accomplished because of this mission. I think another legacy of this flight. Yeah. Now, now the three crew members of Apollo 8, Frank Borman, Bill Anders, and Jim Lovell, two of them, it would be their last mission, right? Borman and Anders. This was, this was, I believe, the last mission that, I think the first for Anders, right. and last for Anders. Yes. Uh, the second for Borman, first one he commanded. But uh, Lovell would go on to fly, I believe, one more? 13, 13, yes. which yeah. is another one we definitely have to talk about. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but where did uh, their careers go off to after that? Yeah, let's see, Borman ended up uh, leaving and at one point became CEO of Eastern Airlines. Anders uh, actually ended up serving as executive secretary for the National Aeronautics and Space Council. Pretty significant. And he ended up having this, this great career. He actually worked on the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, ended up leaving government at some point, and serving as uh, a fellow for the American Enterprise Institute, uh, joins GE, uh, ends up working for, uh, let's see, General Dynamics. Uh, so a pretty significant career after his years of government service. Definitely. You know, one thing we touched on a lot was all of, you know, his leadership for Apollo 8, but he was also very critical to um, the Apollo 1 fire investigation and convincing, I believe, Congress 
that we should continue to fly Apollo. Yes. He was he kind of was one of the leaders in that charge. Um, but yeah, so Apollo eight. <laughs> that uh, that I think that pretty much sums it up. Unless I'm forgetting something before we wrap up. Chris Kraft um, referred to this mission as the NASA's most significant flight. You know, it it really, uh, in his mind, stands out. Um, as a really important mission, so there's a lot of firsts here. The first time we launched in the Saturn V, the first time that we left the Earth, the first time that we went. You can even say this is the first time we went to the Moon. You know, we didn't have mm-hmm. boots on the ground, but we were there. We were we were at the Moon. Yes, well, and and we had bested the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union was no longer going to try to fly men to the Moon. Mm-hmm. You know, technically, if you want to look at it that way, we we had already won in '68, but we hadn't landed on the Moon. Uh-huh. That's so. so they, yeah, that's actually a key component, right? Before before Apollo 8, they were sending animals around the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, but after Apollo 8, they didn't send any humans around the moon. No. Yeah. That's a very significant milestone. And, um, and I think this is a great way to close it. This will be, be part one of our series. We have another one that's going to be a, a, one of the panels that we had here. Mm-hmm. But Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on and talking about uh, Apollo 8. I love... Like you said, this was one of the most important missions in NASA's history, um, not only for the Apollo program, but really for human spaceflight. Um, so I really appreciate having you here to really go into detail about all of this. So thanks again for coming yeah, on. My pleasure. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So once again, that was Dr. Jennifer Rosnazel, our uh, historian here at the Johnson Space Center, telling us all about Apollo 8. We also heard from clips from interviews with Frank Borman and Bill Anders. So uh, we are once again in the middle of the 50th anniversary of some of the Apollo missions. You can check out some of the great uh, resources we have on our website, nasa.gov slash specials slash Apollo 50th. Uh, otherwise, you can check out some of the other stuff going on on some of our other NASA podcasts at nasa.gov slash podcasts. We got great stuff like On a Mission, Invisible Network, Gravity Assist, and NASA in Silicon Valley Live, and Rocket Ranch. Uh, you can check us out on social media. We are the NASA Johnson Space Center on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform. Submit an idea. Make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast, and we'll try to bring it on the show. This episode was recorded on uh, December 13th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Nora Moran, and Kelly Humphreys. Thanks again to Dr. Jennifer Rosnazel for coming on the show once again. And thanks to Frank Borman and Bill Anders for taking the time to speak with me. Happy 50th anniversary to NASA's Apollo program, and happy anniversary to the launch of Apollo 8 on the day that this episode was released, December 21st, 2018, 50 years later. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. We'll be back next week.